the road for of repurposed drugs is uh, full of heartbreak. Hello, I'm Rachel Deere, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the July 29th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. We've recently switched platforms from YouTube to On24 to provide our learners with a more interactive platform. For an optimal viewing experience, we recommend expanding your browser window while viewing this presentation. You can expand the media player, which the video plays from, or the slides window to suit your preferences. Please note, polling questions will appear in the slides window. Polling questions will appear shortly, as well as at the end. Please click the box that corresponds to your answer choice and click the submit button. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. To attest for credit, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There, you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CE programs on a wide range of topics. Today's learning objectives are... Describe data pertaining to prophylaxis trials. Discuss vaccine platforms and development. Discuss some of the challenges of conducting clinical trials for COVID treatments. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated and in-kind by DKB Med. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters, and are free of influence from Pfizer. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Atwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He will be interviewing Dr. Shmuel Shoham, an Associate Professor of Medicine at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and Associate Director of the Transplant and Oncology Infectious Diseases Program there. He will be discussing his work in prophylactic and clinical trials related to treatment and prevention of COVID-19. Thank you for your time, doctors. Yeah, thank you, Rachel, and I uh, wanted to uh, thank my friend and colleague, Dr. Shmuel Shoham, for joining uh, on these conversations uh, about important topics in COVID-19. Uh, Shmuel, I, I've known for years and is an exceptional clinician. He also takes care of patients that uh, have wildly suppressed immune systems, um, solid organ transplants, uh, patients uh, with cancers or leukemia, lymphoma. So, of course, some of the patients that have some of the most pressing questions about when are we going to get things that will make it safe and, and due to return. So, not only that, uh, Dr. Shoham is leading one of the key trials in prevention for uh, COVID-19. So, we'll, we'll hear more about that. But, you know, Shmuel, thanks so much for joining. And, you know, as I, I think about this and prevention, of course, everyone's thinking about vaccines, but there's actually some other interventions potentially. And we're not just talking about wearing masks and social distancing or face shields, all of which are exceptionally important. But in terms of actually therapeutics, either chemotherapeutics or other strategies for helping keep patients safe, there, 
there are a number of uh, things, and of course, probably the most famous is uh, hydroxychloroquine because of uh, certain proponents and so on. Uh, what are your thoughts on how the hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine trials are going in terms of preventing COVID-19? Sure. So, so far, it's been heartbreaking because we were hoping to have a uh, small molecule pill that you could just take and will protect people. But the early results from large-scale studies are not encouraging. Uh, uh, David Bulwari at the University of Minnesota has published at least one major paper, and then there's some uh, things that arise from that showing that it doesn't seem to really make a difference in terms of, of prophylaxis. There are some ongoing studies that are still ongoing, one of which on, on the Data Safety Monitoring Board of that uh, the, the results are still not in, and uh, I'm not disclosing anything that's out of school, but uh, uh, we are monitoring to see if there is a signal, but based on everything that has been already published, we're somewhat pessimistic that we're going to see a, uh, a crackerjack result with uh, chloroquine. You know, so hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine has a long track record of uh, really in vitro activities. So, you know, you put the drug in a test tube and, you know, you put an influenza virus, even Ebola, others, and it looks like there should be activity. And, and really, it's flunked every clinical trial to date. So it would be sort of surprising. And I think, you know, when patients ask me, I always say, well, look, the issue is in a test tube, these drugs also suppress cellular activity and mechanisms. And, and sure, you get some decrease in virus, but that doesn't seem to be the way these drugs work. Because obviously, you, you see these drugs because they're used, obviously, in some rheumatologic conditions and others. And it really, um, it hasn't really prevented any disease that you're aware of in the past, even though people have been on this, like flu and so on. Yeah, and, and I think uh, working in the area of transplant and oncology infectious disease, the road for of repurposed drugs is uh, full of heartbreak. There's many uh, viruses that the drugs seem like they should work, but they weren't designed for that. They were repurposed. And then when you actually put them in the field for real clinical trials, then, then they don't work. Right. And which is why we do the clinical trials, of course, because otherwise going off in vitro or slender threads in small studies can really be misleading, as is seems to be the case with hydroxychloroquine so far. Now, if we pivot, you know, we're going to get to vaccines in a moment, because obviously that, that makes sense, but it's uh, also by no means a done deal. Uh, there have been a, a number of strategies that might be called bridges, you know, that maybe, you know, we can use convalescent plasma, and of course that's your trial, so we want to hear about that. But before we get to that, Operation Warp Speed, everyone says, ah, it's vaccines, but it actually is also providing at-risk manufacturing of a monoclonal antibody, the Regeneron drug. And, you know, since you're in this space and doing studies, tell, tell me your thoughts about the monoclonal, because everyone may not be familiar with that. And then let's talk about convalescent plasma after that. Uh, sure. So, so there's a variety of passive immunization options, one of which uh, you mentioned is monoclonal antibodies. There's also a, uh, an outfit out of the Midwest that is generating uh, antibodies out of cows for treatment. And then there's other processes that are somewhat similar to monoclonal antibodies, but generate somewhat of a polyclonal response. Uh, and again, uh, cooked up in the lab, not taken from people. In terms of monoclonal antibodies, the one that's further along is the Regeneron product. And, and it's actually, I am wrong to say product, it's products, because uh, having one 
one silver bullet monoclonal antibody is is risky because there could be a mutation event that happens. It could be that it just doesn't work. So a cocktail is probably a better option. And uh, the Regeneron has uh, two antibodies that work together at uh, slightly different parts of the virus. And they're setting up for a trial of uh, with 100 sites, which is a uh, logistical tour de force of getting 100 sites to uh, all sing off the same song sheet. On the other hand, it's very powerful because uh, each site doesn't need to enroll as many patients. They are looking for about 2,000 patients, which again is a, a logistical hurdle, but with 100 sites, uh, uh, assuming 20 patients per site, that is doable. I think it's very exciting uh, because the source of monoclonal antibodies can be controlled. Uh, you can do it in, in the laboratory and do it on uh, good FDA oversight and have the product be exactly the same every single time you make it. The downside is that uh, with that level of precision, if something goes wrong and the uh, FDA or the company itself shuts down the factory, all of a sudden there's no monoclonal antibodies. It's a double-edged sword having that level of precision. Yeah, I, I guess it, it might be worth also just pointing out that Regeneron actually has a track record in this area because they also produced a monoclonal antibody product uh, for Ebola virus and, and really beat out ZMAP and, and other products there. So, you know, it's, it's not as though this doesn't have any track record, neither the company or this approach. And, and we'll see, uh, typically monoclonal antibodies or antibodies in general do seem to blunt infections and there's a long track record of that. And I, I guess, Shmuel, how did, how did you get to this huge convalescent plasma study? that you're now, uh, you know, you're the captain of the ship here on this uh, study. So uh, why don't you tell me a little bit of the background and then where things are. And, and honestly, when will we get any news whether this strategy will work? The concept of convalescent antibody is not new or convalescent plasma. It has also been called serum. Plasma is serum plus clotting factor. So uh, if you've heard in the past of serotherapy, whether it's Max Finland doing it in his lab at Boston City Hospital or whether it's uh, used for uh, other indications, it's been around for a long time. And we had participated in a study at Hopkins uh, that was NIH funded a few years ago looking at convalescent plasma for influenza. And uh, the concept, again, was that that could be uh, helpful in this disease that comes year after year. It didn't work, but uh, we did have some lessons learned from it. And one is that uh, you could have a blood bank slash uh, infectious disease and clinician interface where you can generate convalescent plasma to be used. So that was one lesson. And then the second lesson is how to operationalize it to actually make it happen. And uh, we learned that it's important to have a randomized controlled trial because uh, in one of the early phases of the work on influenza, it was an open label and patients that knew that they weren't getting plasma didn't show up for their follow-up appointments. So uh, uh, you'd think, okay, it's a hard endpoint, virological endpoint symptoms. You wouldn't need a control. You do need a control because you lose patients for follow-up. So we learned that, and uh, and based on that, we set up this study uh, for post-exposure prophylaxis. That's the one that I am leading, and the one that my colleague David Sullivan is leading, and, and we're co-investigators on each one, is for people that have the infection but aren't quite sick enough to be in the hospital. So they're sort of companion studies, and they work as, as a strategy. You can imagine so uh, a, uh, an aircraft carrier where one person is infected, you treat that uh, sailor, but then you create a ring of protection around that person as well as post-exposure prophylaxis. So we presented this to a uh, funder 
Robert Hopkins and the governor of Maryland, and they gave us some startup funds, and then we presented it to the Department of Defense, and they uh, really made the, the study possible. It's at about 26 sites across the country at various levels of engagement, and uh, hopefully in the next few weeks, all of them will be up and running completely. And the concept for the post-exposure prophylaxis is if Saudis had a high-risk exposure per CDC criteria. Generally, it's at the home or a healthcare worker, but uh, uh, pretty soon as uh, we're trying to catch up with the CDC recommendations in terms of our inclusion exclusion criteria. So pretty soon it's going to be somebody at work, somebody at play who has an exposure, then they can get plasma that it has a titer of greater than one to 320, not neutralizing antibody titer because that's kind of hard to measure in the field, but they regular ELISA titer. So I call that high octane. And then they can also get the control, which is plasma that was obtained before 2020 and therefore is unlikely to have very much or any antibodies in it against coronavirus. And then we follow them and the main point that we're trying to find is do they get infection or not? Yes, we care. Do they end up in the hospital, in the ICU, or worse? But at the lowest level is, can we prevent infection? It's, it's an ongoing uh, study, and uh, there are a lot of positives in it, but there's also a lot of challenges. Some of the challenges of doing outpatient coronavirus studies are not uh, to be minimized. And I would say that in uh, over 20 years of doing clinical trials, this is the hardest study that I've ever done. But I've never done a study where the subjects are considered uh, public health hazards. Yeah. Yeah. So many challenges. And then just to wrap up the concept of prophylaxis, I mean, vaccines, of course, could take up a, a whole program and so on. But I thought we could sort of talk about just from your view, a couple things, because, yeah, I mean, I've been impressed. I mean, we are really uh, traveling at incredible speed with some uh, very interesting vaccine strategies, which haven't been used previously in humans. We're just starting these massive 30,000 patient studies. You're talking about, you know, how difficult it is to do those, although vaccines are going to be easier than giving plasma. But, you know, uh, so much is riding on the S protein, the spike protein here. And, um, you know, and different uh, groups are using that. But we've learned, really, that this novel coronavirus, you know, you do make antibodies to other uh, proteins of the virus and uh, T-cell epitopes are also important. But my question has to be, of course, these studies are going ahead. And do you feel that, for example, your patient population, the the immunosuppressed and transplant, and not asking for prognostics, but I'm not sure that group is really being recruited into a lot of these studies per se. And 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 where are we going to be? I mean, I know we'll get some indication and we'll have vaccine already manufactured on hand, but there's going to be groups of people that we just don't know. And none of these are live viruses, thank goodness. But what's your what's your sense? Are we just going to have to try to give the vaccine to groups that may not really be well represented? Uh, we may. And, and one of the uh, advantages of having either a monoclonal antibody or a convalescent plasma as a passive immunization is that you can wear a belt and suspenders. So you can have somebody who's uh, immunocompromised that you're just not sure is going to mount a decent response. We'll maybe flood them with uh, whatever is in the convalescent uh, plasma or with the more specific monoclonal antibody and vaccinate them. And then in, in one way, get them over the hump of an immediate risk and then uh, have them uh, vaccinated. And it's possible that if you get them over the hump of an immediate risk and they might have uh, some exposure in the community, then maybe they'll develop a long-lasting antibody. I'm not saying that anybody get convalescent plasma and go hang out at the bar. That's not what I'm saying, but uh, there might be protection there as well. 
Yeah, and I guess I, just one last thing, and this is all hypothetical, but we know from influenza vaccine, people can be immunized, they may not get disease, but still harbor the virus, even shed it and maybe transmit it, possibly. Uh, we, we think this happens in influenza to some degree, especially in patients that you take care of. So I, I guess we don't know here, but I could imagine, and interested in your thoughts, that this may be still true also for the what you just said, that you know you may not have complete protection. We're still going to have to wear masks and be cautious with social distancing uh, for quite a while until it's very clear that the, the, the levels of this virus have declined dramatically. Yeah, I think we're going to have to learn a lot about it, particularly with the immunocompromised patients. The one good thing, if you will, is that, for example, our lung transplant patients, they're experts in this. This has been a little bit inconvenient for them, and I don't want to minimize what's happening, but, but the, the patients that have had cystic fibrosis all their lives, they're like, oh, yeah, this is old hat. Right. They know, they know the rules, right? Yeah. Other road. Well, uh, Shmuel, I really wanted to thank you for your expertise and insights. Uh, I think it's been a, a great discussion and uh, really uh, look forward to learning more and, and anticipating your study, which I, I think obviously uh, for any of the viewers here, uh, you're going to see it uh, in the newspapers when you get your results. So uh, really looking forward to that. Thanks, Shmuel. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Shoham and Dr. Awater for an enlightening discussion about a very important topic. As a reminder, to claim credit, please complete the evaluation at covid19.dkbmed.com and select today's activity. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19.